So we have been in a series called the Issachar Factor, and if you have a Bible and want to find the story behind this later on, 1 Chronicles 12, where there was a group of men who were not so much the warriors but the strategists, not so much the, the sword throwers and the shield bearers, but the, the ones who said, let me take out a look at the landscape. Let me do some recon and see what's going on and direct the pathway of the king, King David. And so our take on it has been that we need to be men and women of Issachar so that we should understand the times and know the things that we should do. And we've, we've taken a look at, at, at uh, the culture in general, and we're going to take a look at some specific examples later on. But today I want to talk about how we live in such a culture. We can read the news feed and look around us and see things that we don't really appreciate. Uh, I wrote this in my journal, the relationship between people of faith and the wider culture is on the minds of lots of people. A quick scan of the news feeds shows stories about a hostage situation in Texas at a Jewish synagogue, debates about swimmers who used to be one gender and now claim to be another, violence in many major cities, concern about access and fairness of elections, godly lives in a pagan culture. Here's what I hope we take away. Mercy's our motivation. Remember, we've defined mercy as not getting what we do deserve, and grace is getting what we don't deserve. So not getting what we do deserve. And today we're going to talk about injustice. We're going to talk about when it's just not fair. We're going to talk about lots of those kind of things. And, and, and where we're trying to go is to say that there, there is a response that we make, that we choose to be godly over godless, and we acknowledge that the world is a mess. That we can look outside our window, we can look at our phone, we can look at our neighborhoods, we can listen to the reports. The, the, the world is a mess. David Brooks is somebody that I, I follow. He writes for the New York Times. And he wrote a, an article this past week called, America is Falling Apart at the Seams. And he wrote about road rage, airplane rage, hospital patient rage, student rage, addiction rage, abuse, hate crimes, and then he said, happy Sunday. <laughs> Yay. I mean, there's a lot that's messed up in our world, and it's really easy to feel that there are problems without solutions. And in many cases, people who are suggesting solutions that don't really have problems and then there are lots of places where our media and some others have co-opted the, the narrative to try to convince us that the problem is Christianity. The problem is the, the people who are trying to live a biblical faith. A, a law was passed in Canada this week. My college roommate is a, a, an administrator with the Canadian government. He says Canadians pass lots of laws that they never enforce. And maybe this will be one of them. I don't know. But it's a law that says that it is now illegal for any person, teacher, pastor, person of authority, to teach biblical heterosexual values with regard to the way genders relate to each other, and it is punishable with up to five years in prison if you are caught. 
afraid we're going to harm the children, right? A coach in Seattle this week was fired, or, or the, the, the news about the lawsuits that are going to inevitably roll through the courts was, was published this week. A, a, a coach in Seattle who, who began to go to the 50-yard line after a football game and just kneel and pray by himself. Some of the guys on the team were inspired by it. They joined him. Some others joined him. Some other students joined him. Even some people from the opposing team began to hear about it. They joined him. Well, of course, he lost his job. And now that's working its way through the courts. And, and this is what the school district said in their lawsuit. They said, we don't want, says this, the school district claims, this case is about protecting impressionable students who feel pressured by their coach. So we can pressure them with lots and lots of things as long as it's not biblical faith. We can, we can teach lots and lots of things as long as it's not biblical faith. And so Simon Peter is writing to a culture that's not all that different than ours. And I'll point out some similarities as we uh, go along. If you need a, a minute to find it in your Bible or your swipey thing, then it's 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We covered the first 10 verses last week, and we're going to pick up with verse 11 and go through the end of the chapter this week. But Peter was writing to a culture that was not all that different than ours. And the thing is that we have a choice as to how we're going to respond to the culture, right? We, we, we sort of know that it's out there. We, we have a sense that our, our faith is solid, and if you're uh, sort of just going to tune in to the Bible thing, there, there's a lot in there that is incredibly wise and, in, and incredibly insightful, incredibly instructive, and, and, and our options are these. We can either war against the culture, Last week we talked about Niebuhr's book, Christ and Culture, and, and he said one of our options is that we rail against the culture. We establish that we are warriors, we need to tear it down, we need to do whatever we can to, to disrupt, that we have a message that has to be heard, the culture won't hear it, so we need to make them hear it. Culture warriors. Or we can withdraw told you about a book by Rob Dreher called The Benedictine Option. And in that book, he suggests that like the Benedictine monks, we should just withdraw from the culture. It's beyond repair. There's nothing that can be done. And so we should create our own Christian economy and our own Christian schools and our own Christian neighborhoods and our own Christian court system and our own... And we should... The, 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 the pagan culture is beyond repair, so we should simply withdraw from that. The first two options are viable. We can war against it and we can withdraw from it. The problem is they're not biblical. The problem is that's not what Jesus called us to do. Jesus called us to be in the culture. He called us to be salt in the culture. Salt as a, as a seasoning. Salt as a preservative. Salt as an influence. Salt as an irritant. He called us to be light, to illuminate the dark places, to shine light, to shine truth where truth needs to be shined. He called us to be in the culture, not away from the culture, and, and certainly not to, to shout so loud that the culture won't even hear us anymore. He called us to be influential people. Two quotes, both by uh, Dr. King 
He said about the culture, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state, never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, if we aren't the ones that say, I have a better option, I have a better message. If we aren't the ones, he said it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. Then he said in 1950, it is our job as ministers to bring the whole church back to the center of the human race. But we can only bring the church back to the center of the human race when we bring Christ back to the center of the church. Wow. So some observations in the the, the text, our, our third option is risk. Our third option is risk. It, it may cost us something to, to be prophetic in the culture. It, it may cost us something to do our best to live a life that is according to biblical faith. We may say things that aren't popular. We may believe things that aren't widely embraced. We may be accused of intolerance. We may be canceled. But it's a, it's a call to risk. David Platt said it this way in his book, Following Christ in an Anti-Christian Age. Either we retreat from Christ and the culture or we risk following Christ by countering the culture. And risk is the right word. As followers of Christ, we are fooling ourselves if we don't face the reality that belief in and obedience to the Bible is anti, in an anti-Christian age will inevitably lead to risk in one's family, future relationships, reputation, career, and comfort in this world. Russell Moore in his book Onward said it this way, we're not here to register our outrage and protest. Satan is undisturbed by all that bluster. Satan isn't afraid of culture warriors or values voters. Satan is afraid of a crucified Galilean who has paid, who has a great deal of trouble staying dead. We can't fight like the devil in order to please the Lord. So we, we have a, a cultural mandate, and as we dive into this text, three principles just to sort of mark in your head. Number one, we have something to offer. We believe that this crucified Galilean provides hope for the world, hope for the addict, hope for... Uh, we believe that. Secondly, we as a church have work to do. We can be angry or we can love. We can be uh, indignant and we can love. We can hate the fact that these things are happening in our culture and love to our very core the people who do those things. Because Christ is calling them to himself. Third, we approach this text. Let's be reminded sin is still sin. No matter how much we tolerate the sin that doesn't offend us personally, no matter how intolerant we're accused of being when we stand up for biblical conduct, no matter sin is still sin. The things that Jesus says are wrong, the things that, says that, God, that God says are wrong, they're still wrong no matter how we paint them, even when we're doing them. And so we, we first shine a light deep into our own souls. So Simon Peter was writing to this church, and this particular church was not that much different than our church. It was actually a collection of churches, and all of them were in fairly uh, busy kind of towns. They were on Roman highways. 
We tend to think that the people that are, are the subjects of these letters were people who were uh, poor and outcast and, and impoverished. That's probably not the case. Why do I think that? Because Peter is assuming that they have influence in their cities. He's assuming that when they talk, somebody listens. And so more likely, these were people who were families in Rome or Jerusalem or some of the other places, and when it became a little less popular to be Christian, when Nero began to blame Christians for things that are going wrong, they probably migrated out of Rome to other places. And they probably did so very intentionally because back before Nero was the emperor, Claudius was the emperor, and Claudius had in his mind, if we will send influential Romans to all of these towns, we will make Roman towns. These, these churches that we're talking about today, they're in Turkey, they're in, the, in, in Asia Minor, they're in the, the, that, that sort of south-central area of Turkey, uh, uh, east of the Aegean, north of the Mediterranean, they're, they're not in Italy. But the strategy of the Roman emperor was to say, if we'll send people, give them a tax break, give them some benefits as citizens, uh, sort of let them take over the Roman town, then all of these Roman towns all over the Roman Empire can help to keep the peace, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. That was the goal. And so these people were likely sort of felt pressure to leave Rome, but there were some perks that went along with it. And Peter is going to assume that they have influence, assume that they are able to speak into all levels of society, including the government. And that, that's kind of what the text is about. So it's a church not unlike ours, a church that would be uh, easy for them to assume that they are powerless. They have no voice. Nobody appreciates the, the message of the cross. Nobody appreciates the power of God. Nobody embraces this. And Peter is trying to say, don't forget your God. As J.B. Phillips would say, your God is too small. You have a, a, an empire to change. And so that's what he's writing about. But he says it's got to be heart over hate. It, it's got to be a heartbreaking event. Uh, I've got, yes, I hate injustice. Yes, I get angry when there are things that are going on in culture that are, are, are government-sanctioned and, and they're just awful. But is my heart broken over the brokenness that all this causes? Peter writes to this church, if you look in verse 11, uh, verse 11, chapter uh, 2, verse 11. He starts with the word beloved. And if you were a little bit of a Bible geek, a lot of times the Bible uses something called, we've, we've talked about it in here, an inclusio or, or like parentheses where one word starts a, a sort of a body of teaching and that same word ends it. If you look in chapter 4, verse 12, you'll see the same word beloved. And it's like there's a unit of teaching that's contained between chapter 2, verse 11, and chapter 4, verse 12. And that unit has to do with how we relate to the community as households of faith. And so he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. 
the first thing to know as we try to live godly lives in a Christian culture is that we don't belong, is that we have a different value system, that we who follow Christ have a, a different way of thinking, a different fabric, a different uh, uh, logic line. We, we try to honor God who is omniscient and omnipotent. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. We, we, we worship a different God. And so our, our value system is a little different. He says, you're sojourners, you're, you're exiles, you don't belong here. And then he gives a negative and a positive back to back. He says, you should abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. In other words, don't imitate the things the culture does. Don't, don't do the things the culture does. Paul said, I understand it in, verse, in chapter 7 of Romans. He said, I understand there's the battle. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I, I don't want to do, I do. The things I don't want to think, I think. The things I should think, I don't think. He said, I'm a mess. But Peter is saying, don't, don't intentionally head down that road so that people looking at you can't really understand if your value system is one that is based on the Scripture or based on something else. So he gives a negative. He said, abstain from those things. And then he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Another translation says, do good. <laughs> do good stuff. And so he's not just talking about trying to evangelize, trying to, to help people with the gospel. He's also saying, maybe contribute to the community. Maybe pick up some garbage. Maybe help people who don't have clothes to have clothes. Maybe help to feed those who don't have food. Maybe, maybe to volunteer in some areas in the community that are helpful. Do good. Let your conduct. So he says, stay away from all the, the nasty habits that are so common in the culture. Stay, stay away from those. Don't, don't let you be caught in the pornography and in the trafficking and in the fraud and in the embezzlement. When, when, when believers are caught up in those kind of things after claiming to be Christians, it just tears down everything. Okay, that makes sense. He says, but alongside of it, don't, don't hermit yourself. Don't, don't just hide. Be out in the community doing good. And then there's one of those clauses the, the henna clause in the, in the Greek, the, the so that, the in order to, that, that if these things happen, there are some other things that will happen. And so he says, abstain from the bad stuff, keep your conduct good, so that when people speak about you against you as evildoers, when they accuse you of being bad, they got no evidence. All the evidence points in the other direction. And so it is our heart over the hate. It's our, it's our insistence that we understand that there is a cause and effect, that the things that we choose to do, the, the, the first step in being a, a godly person in a pagan culture is to understand what's at stake, and it is testimony. Well, if we keep reading, purity over politics. And I use that word on purpose. I use that word on purpose because our, so much of our community discussion is driven by politics, and before long, our politics becomes primary. And Peter is saying it's our purity that's primary. Verse 13 is a, is a new section, and he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake. If you've got a highlighter, highlight that. If you've got a real Bible, I wouldn't advise writing on your phone. 
highlight for the Lord's sake. He's not telling us to sell out on biblical authority just to get along. But he says, be subject to the human institutions, to the human leaders in a in a not-my-president-on-the-bumper-sticker culture. He's saying, be subject to the emperor, to governors sent by him to keep law and order. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence. I'll show you the Scripture. I'm reading a lot of it. That you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Hard stop there. Before I move on to the, to the rest of that scripture, he, he, he's saying that, that there, is, there is value in allowing the government to work itself out. We should be vocal in the things that, that move against the Scripture. We should be vocal against the, the things that are voted upon that we cannot tolerate as Christians. We should be vocal for the Lord's sake. But he says we, we shouldn't be anarchists. We shouldn't use our freedom in Christ to just disrupt because we don't like some things that are going on. If we don't like them on biblical grounds, we should rail from the housetops. We should refuse to do things that violate a scriptural conscience or a scriptural mandate. But in a lot of the things that are going on, it's, it's preference. And we, we mess up our ability to speak peace into the culture when we are not free in Christ, but we take that freedom to rebel. That's what he says. He goes on. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom to cover up evil, but living as servants for God. Don't, don't say, I'm a Christian, I can do anything I want to. Honor everyone. And the way the structure is there honor everyone is the command and then the other three are illustrations love the brotherhood fear god honor the emperor and then he says servants be subject to your masters and he gets into this place that's a little uncomfortable because peter doesn't rail against slavery in his culture and most of us think he should he doesn't he doesn't declare that slavery is an evil institution, which it was and is. But he knew that to rail against the culture at that point would eliminate the idea for the church to grow and develop and mature. And he chose to say, if you are a servant, we could say slave, there's, there's no other way to paint it, but, but it would be fair to say today it might be employees. It might be someone who serves someone else, who waits on someone else, who, who works for someone else. The, the idea is the power differential. And many of the masters were cruel. You, you can't paint it any other way. The, the word he uses here is not the brutal word for slave, but a word for a slave that could eventually pay for their freedom. There was, there was at least that hope in this word that he used here. 
But the point is that he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows. I hate stuff that isn't fair. But as my friend Chip reminded me, if it was fair, we'd all go to hell. There's not anything fair about the gospel. The gospel takes the sins that we committed and places them on the back of Jesus Christ. So we should get over the idea of fairness in our culture. And there are relationships that you were in, circumstances that you were in, situations that you were in that are simply unjust. You know it. The person who's in power over you knows it. It's not fair. It's not right. You shouldn't be able to legislate against Christianity and not legislate against other things. You shouldn't be able to tell students that they can't hear prayer in school, but they can hear anything and everything else. Not fair. But he says, what do you do when it's not fair? What do you do when it's unjust? There, there was no more unjust situation than slavery. The, the slaves were at the very bottom of the, 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 the power pool. They had nothing. And he says that slaves are to be subject to their masters. And then he says, verse 19, for it is a gracious thing. Break down that word. It is a grace-filled thing. It is a thing that reflects grace. Getting what we do not deserve. Getting what is not fair. Getting what is not earned. It is a grace-filled thing. You model the very gospel when it is totally unfair and you bear up in it. This was hard for me. He goes on. He says, "You're while suffering unjustly, what credit is it when you uh, sin and are beaten for it and you endure? But if you do good and suffer and endure, and then he says it again, this is a grace-filled thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin, live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. That sounds a little bit like Isaiah 53. That's because that's where he got it. That Jesus suffered as one who, who didn't deserve to suffer. He, he, he didn't deserve uh, what he got. But the Scripture says in Romans 5 that God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, while we weren't all better, while we aren't all redeemed, while we aren't all cleaned up, Jesus died for us. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever would believe in Him, not, not whoever's cleaned up, whoever's got their act together, whoever's not suffering, whoever is, is, is pretty. He said whoever with no qualifiers, whoever would receive Him would not perish but have everlasting life. We can't miss that. That, yes, we live in an ungodly culture. Yes, there are myriad examples of things that we wish were different. Yes, there are lots of illustrations where things are going. That's what the gospel is all about. That's, that's why we come to Christ, is that we need to know how to deal in a fallen world. 
My favorite statement of this is in Philippians chapter 2. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. It's the, the church that was probably the first church established in Europe. And he broke into a song. And he said, we are to encourage each other. We are to build one another up. We are to have the attitude that Jesus had. And then he said, here's the attitude that Jesus had. Although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard Godness a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant, a slave. He was made in the likeness of men. He left heaven. He left his angelic real estate. He became one of us on fallen earth. And because he died, because he was willing to die, because he was willing to experience death, even death on the cross, God highly exalted him. And he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow of those under the earth, on the earth, above the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. In the midst of suffering... Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. In the midst of praise, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. In the midst of horrible circumstances, of abuse, of power differential, of horrible things that are in the news cycle that, that just seem to be allowed, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That is God's economy. And sometimes we even get it better when it's hard. I'm reading Oswald Chambers' My Utmost for His Highest again this year, and I bought a new paper copy of it that I could write in and highlight and mark up and editorialize. You know me. And so this week, January 22nd, this was his quote. He said, The greatest difficulty spiritually is to concentrate on God, and His blessings are what make that difficult. Troubles almost always make us look to God, but His blessings tend to divert our attention elsewhere. When we are feeling injustice, when we are feeling powerless, when we struggle with the internal emotions that are just sort of lighting up, firing all the little neurons, and while we're just angry at what's going on in the culture, is that not a time when we have to say to God, I need you most. I don't know how to live a godly life in a pagan culture. And we cry out to Him for His presence. We cry out to Him for His guidance. And we are never more pure as a disciple when we are dependent on God.